simple promise that you are strong and kind. You are our protector, our fortress, our defender, our rock and high tower. And yet in your firmness, in your solidity and power, you are for your people a source of comfort and grace, goodness, kindness, and love. We come to you, Father, longing to be the church that you want us to be and to become. And pray that as we look to the Word of God for aid and for help here in this time together, that you would meet with us and instruct us by your Spirit, drawing to Christ those who know him not as Savior. We pray for their souls. We pray, Father, that you would work by your Spirit here. And thank you that you have worked by your Spirit to allow us to understand and to speak the words that Jesus is Lord. We speak them by the Spirit of God. And now as we look to how you would have us live as a church, I pray that we would bring all under your Lordship and be instructed and faithful in our calling. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Human flourishing depends on carefully calibrated collaborative efforts. Something as simple as a recipe. A recipe mixes together the right ingredients such that the whole tastes far better than the individual parts. Likewise, all manner of human endeavor requires the right mix of individual skills then aimed at any unified goal. Take launching a rocket into space, for example. It relies on the collaborative efforts of a host of differently skilled people aiming at the same goal. Not one of them could launch a rocket on his own, but scientists and technicians and business managers and public relations directors and computer programmers and architects and construction workers and fundraisers and transportation providers and custodians and receptionists and more all pool their diverse skills to see that rocket launched into space. The same could be said for athletic teams and governments and corporations and in some sense for all human endeavor. Carefully calibrated, collaborative effort. It is with a very heightened sense that we say this about the local church, that it functions collaboratively. We labor as a united body with a single purpose carried out by members who employ a diversity of spiritual gifts. We we are learning here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Called by God, redeemed by Christ, baptized in the Holy Spirit, we use our gifts collectively to display God's glory and to advance His kingdom. Mature, God-honoring, healthy local churches get this. They understand this about themselves. They recognize that we do not gather merely for self and to get out of the church what we desire individually. We get this. We know why we exist. We know that God has sovereignly set in place the members of the church with these diverse gifts, and they We come then in humility to recognize that the local church and its unity 
is impossible without diversity. That unity without diversity cannot happen. Just as diversity without unity is destructive. Unity without diversity is impossible because there'd be nothing there to unify. We'd all be exactly the same. Diversity without unity is chaos. There's nothing there to give cohesion to the diversity of the gifts of God's people in the church. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 serves like a guiding star through a dark valley, helping us steer our course with a proper balance of that diversity in unity that marks a mature local church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 serves that way, reminding us as we made our way through the first 11 verses last week, beginning at verse 4, that there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. The triune God, diversity and unity, as Justin prayed this morning. That God enables and empowers us to live out our ministry together with those diverse gifts working toward that unified goal. Verse 7, to each is given then the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For something larger than self, we are so empowered. Verse 8, 4, to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. God is at work. He is at work sovereignly to place and to empower what He desires to see taking place in His churches. Now, Paul elaborates on this theme as we continue forward. And this is a good place for us to remember that he writes to a very divided church. His opening word of instruction deals with the divisions that prevail among them. But Paul is not so small, he's not so dim-witted as to say, people, knock it off, grow up. Rather, he understands that their divisions are a reflection of the underlying problem is that they don't know who they are. They don't understand what God has done in his saving grace and what he intends to do with them as a body. And so Paul aims at the heart of their disunity as a church, a failure here to appreciate the implications of their union with Christ as his body in Corinth. While aiming to provide that counsel, he's working himself toward the very specific application of chapter 14 but works himself up to that by doing this groundwork here in chapter 12 and chapter 13. He starts with a theology lesson in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Christ. 
Paul introduces here an analogy that he's going to play out through chapter 12, like a single body with multiple members, body parts, understand, so it is with Christ. Christ here, I think, is shorthand for so it is with the church, the body of Christ. What are the theological underpinnings of our oneness as the body of Christ, the church? Verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is a challenging verse. It's led people in a lot of different directions. We just need to take a a course through it as we understand where to land on the meaning of this text. I'm going to lay out and take a little bit of time here and to look through three conclusions that I'm drawing as the speaker here today. Others draw different conclusions, but I think there's good reason to believe three things about this verse. First of all, baptized into one body and made to drink of one spirit. I take those as parallel statements. That is, he's saying the same thing twice for emphasis. It's not two different experiences there, verse 13, baptized into one body to drink of one spirit. I don't think that's two different experiences, but one. So he's using this in a parallel sense. Secondly, I would take spirit to be capitalized, as the ESV does, in keeping with all other, the six uses of spirit baptism in the New Testament. So I think what Jesus was prophesying, what John the Baptist spoke of, What Jesus then linked to in John the Baptist's ideas, I think are parallel, they're they're of the same ilk as this statement here. And then thirdly, while water baptism may be part of the equation, the primary focus here is on spirit baptism as implied by the parallel drink of one spirit. So let's just take that in order. First of all, Baptized into one body, drinking of one spirit is the same idea. Some would link drinking here of the spirit to the Lord's Supper. The Bible never makes that connection, that the cup is to be connected to the Holy Spirit in some way. Nor can we agree with those that would insist that drinking of the spirit is a second work of grace, something after conversion. Nowhere does the New Testament support this assumption that this is a post-conversion experience that must be read into the text. So I think, first of all, that baptized into one body and drinking of one spirit is the same experience and comes at our conversion. Secondly, spirit, as I said, should be capitalized. It could be taken as a small s without the article. And so that in some human spirit, we are baptized, immersed into the body of Christ. But I believe this is a reference to baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is, again, its meaning in each of the six New Testament usages. I don't think there's something different in the use of spirit baptism here that is different from those directives. We could look at, for instance, Acts 1.5 and 11.16. And then thirdly, while water baptism may certainly be part of the equation, I believe the primary focus here is spirit baptism. 
The parallel statement, drink of one spirit, rules out a connection to water baptism. We, quite, we are quite happily immersed in the baptistry. We're not so thrilled if we get a drink while we're doing so. So I don't, I don't think here is, is, is immersion is in view. We're washed clean. So what is it saying? When we put our trust and faith in Christ, when you came to that place as a believer, where you trusted Jesus' death in your place and his resurrection, in that moment, you were baptized in the Spirit. The Spirit of God, so to speak, poured out upon you, cleansing you of sin. That cleansing, that washing, that forgiveness of sin against God Notice that it is true of all. Paul's not talking to a, a church that's doing real well spiritually. Some elitist spiritual people. They maybe thought that, but that's certainly not the case. And yet he says there, notice in verse 13, in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. So what he's saying is true of every believer. The, this baptism then is not a post-conversion event restricted to the spiritually mature or adventurous. It applies to all who are united by faith to Christ, thus to conversion. And we are united, as it says here, Jew, Gentile, slaves, and free. It's just shorthand for across all types of relational divides. There's a oneness, there's a unity in Christ that comes through that baptism. So in that moment of repentant trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit washing the believer, cleansing us of sin. And in this cleansing of soul, we are then united with the body of Christ, with others who are likewise cleansed. The, the, this washing attesting to the reality of our salvation and bringing us, as we saw in the first couple of verses, to say that Jesus is Lord with all of our lives. So there's the, the theological background to what he is saying here. The formation of the body, a diversity of members are spirit-baptized into the one body. They are united in this one cause, united in this one relationship with God. Now, by way of analogy, the church functions like a human body. He plays this out in verses 14 and following. First of all, dealing with the diversity of the body, and then secondly, with the unity of the body. He'll use this analogy to the physical body to draw out both of these emphases. So the diversity of the body, first of all, illustrated beginning in verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. One member is what? What's the member mean? A member is a body part. Paul sets up this analogy to encourage us to value the diversity of the body. We're not all the same. We're not all equally gifted. And recognizing this diversity is vital to the health of the church. So the body does not consist of one member but of many. He's using this analogy moving forward. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. I mean, how silly. Obviously, each part has its own function, and to think that it needs to have a different function is just silliness. 
In verse 17, now Paul answers back against these misguided body parts, so to speak. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Each body part must perform its unique function. This is quite evident. So verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would, be, where would the body be? God sovereignly chooses to place individual body parts in the body. And he's obviously moving, and I think they've caught this already, as it's certainly obvious to us, that he's speaking about them as members of the church. God arranges, the Greek word means to set or to put in place. God sets in place, God puts in place the individual members of the one united body. Strange, isn't it? Just to, I mean, just to think of that here in this spot. It's strange because we tend to think in terms of the church that we choose. The church we choose to join as we visit and compare and contrast this or that feature against other church options in our setting. Kind of think of it in those terms. I'm, I'm in this church because of these features. But let us also recognize that it is God who ultimately sets us in place as a member of a local church body. I've said Many times in explaining to people outside of our church or circle or friends or people who don't know me, I've said many, many times, explaining what I do, that if I had known what I knew now, if I had made the choice from this standpoint, I would never be in Burnsville, Minnesota. It just would not have been where I chose to land in this place at all. It's really clear to me that God put me here. He set me here. I don't know why. I don't understand. And I've got nothing against anybody here or this place or location or Burnsville. I love it all and love you all. But it's just really clear that he put me here. He put you here. We, none of us, will be here forever. Whether we die here and are buried in this church or we move on fairly soon. None of us will be here forever, but we do need to have a very distinctive sense that God has put us here, that he set us here in this moment for this place for a reason. So the point of verses 14 through 20 taken together, I didn't read verse 20, let me do that now. Uh, so verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The point of verses 14 to 20, recognizing the beauty and importance of diverse gifts in the body is just as important as fighting for a church's unity. Sometimes 14 through 20 get kind of glossed over because of our very obvious concern about unity. In fact, with the Corinthian church, division's a major issue. And so that's certainly being addressed here. However, let us not go too quickly past this. The unity we strive for 
necessitates an understanding of diversity. That there are different people, different spiritual gifts placed in the body sovereignly by the Lord of the church. So it's not one or the other, of course, but it's also not one over the other. We must humbly realize that other members bring various gifts to the table, gifts that we do not all have. The implication is that we should strategically encourage the exercise of those gifts. What does that mean? Sometimes that means getting out of the way. Sometimes it means lending a supportive hand without trying to take over. Sometimes this means giving a word of encouragement when you see someone serving the body well in some area. And it always means seeing even the smallest service or ministration as an evidence of the Spirit's work in a believer's life and in our church's life. So these verses expose this lie. Eden Baptist Church does not need me. That's a lie. And I I would encourage those of you who are members of this assembly and attend on Sunday morning, but nothing else. Your attendance is vital to the ministry of this assembly. It is vital in your singing, in your giving, in your being here to identify with the people of God drawn into the church from the world to walk in holiness and fidelity and to attend God's word, to speak with one another and encourage one another. This is so vital. But I would encourage you to consider there's more. There's more to the body than just gathering on the Lord's day in the morning and doing so then again the next week. How are you using what God has given you to build up this assembly? This is really important. In fact, I'd say this is the most important of all, right here, right now, as we gather together. But there's so much more. So much more that God would be pleased to accomplish through you in the lives of his people. And I may speak to some, you struggle to find that way. How do I serve Christ's call? I don't know what I bring to the picture. I don't know even how to fit in. I would say give it time, join in as I mentioned last week, get busy doing something, serving, but also seek counsel. You say, I really believe that God would use me more effectively than I'm being used. Seek the counsel of some who can help you find places where you can serve the Lord. Of course, in one sense, the church needs none of us. So when I say the lie, Eden Baptist does not need me, I don't mean by that that ultimately Christ needs any of us. Yet God puts every member in the body in order that we would serve his cause together in oneness. So how is your life contributing to the growth, to the development, to the maturity of the people of God? We must all ask that question and continue to assess. And how am I encouraging the same in my fellow members? 
On the other side of it, those very busy and very active in the assembly can sometimes take on the attitude, I'll do it all, and I'll do it all best. That too is missing the point. We want to draw in and encourage all of the diverse gifts that the Lord gives to us in expanding his church. But that's verses 14 to 20. Now, in verses 21 to 26, Paul's emphasis shifts to the oneness of that assembly. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the feet to the, or the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. Let's consider just briefly 21 through 24a. Every morning, we spend time getting dressed and making sure that all our private parts, and then some, are covered with clothing. Every one of us has done that. A quick look at the uh, assembly here today, I think we're all clothed, right? We, we, have, we, have all, we all do that by nature. We also spend time doctoring our weakest features. Hair is really, really weak. You get out of bed in the morning and your arm is unfazed by it all, but your hair looks like it's been in a grinder. So you do something with it. At least comb it, but probably wash it. Presenting yourself in public means that you're going to do something about that hair, assuming that you have anything to do with. I've got so much I can brag, right? You wake up with a zit on your nose and you address it. How can I reduce this size at least? You spend time on it. You don't cut your nose off. You doctor it. You take care of it. This is what he's saying. We compensate for weaknesses with diligent care and we cover our unpresentable parts with clothing. Now here's the pointed application. Verse 24b, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Stub your toe in the dark at night, and your nose does not say, hey, what's your problem down there? Get over it, brother Digit. I, I don't feel any pain. What's wrong with you? No, you stub your toe in the dark, and your whole body is hurting for that little toe. Every body part rallies to the aid of that ailing member. Likewise, as one body in Christ, when a member suffers, it is our calling and privilege to rally around that member, to bear the weight with them. Even if it's the little toe, your whole body, head and hands and feet and arms and legs and tongue, all are working with that pain, all bearing it up. And how I thank God for the DNA of Eden Baptist Church in this regard. 
It's so encouraging to watch the growth of this assembly through the years. To see the many and innovative ways that people express the comfort of the Spirit in times of trial. Coming alongside, pouring out resources, demonstrating concern, working to lift the weight. Oh, I'd make a wonderful book if somebody could write it. The various parts and pieces... There is no question that there are people in the history of this church that feel forgotten. They feel like they've been missed. And I suppose, humanly speaking, that is the case. But I also think of the many, many faces that come to mind who have been helped in significant ways through deep, deep trials. This is what the body's meant to do. You ache for that little toe. The whole body, so we as a body, ache for those who suffer. The opposite also applies here, that those who are honored, we rejoice together with them. As someone compliments your voice as a singer, your knee does not get jealous. Your hand does not respond in a cynical, well, there will be no living with her now. And your foot doesn't say, whatever, dude, I've got steps to worry about. No, we all rejoice. The whole body rejoices with the compliment. Now, I I think in the assembly, in this assembly, most of that will happen privately. But as we rejoice with those who are honored, as we celebrate with those who accomplish, this is one of the reasons that we recognize newborns in the assembly. There's a thousand ways of doing that and a hundred things you can call it. But we bring before the assembly those who have been born into this assembly to rejoice with those who rejoice. To say with them, we see the grace of God and we are happy with you. This verse is why we hold an annual graduation picnic and fellowship. It's not a Bible requirement. But it's to say of those who have completed a journey and are celebrating a graduation from some course of study, we rejoice with you. We celebrate with you. We recognize you and gather around you that way. Nobody comes to that fellowship for the cake. It's not all that good. I mean, it's great, but it's just you just, you'd go home. We're here to celebrate what's been accomplished. This is why we attend weddings. This is why we rejoice to hear testimonies of God's blessing on our members. We certainly had that opportunity here last Wednesday night with some of the testimonies that were given to rejoice with those who have seen the blessing of God in their life. So, put it together now. If verses 14 through 20 expose the lie the church does not need me, Verses 21 to 26 expose the lie, I don't need the church. Or I don't need that certain member. Every member of the church has a relationship with every other member of the church. Every member of the church needs the other members. Imagine your head saying to your feet, hey dogs, I really don't need you, you can just disappear. Thud. The whole body hits the ground. We need each other. There is a diversity that is utterly essential to recognize and a unity 
of interdependent collaborative effort that is utterly essential for us to grow and mature as a body. Now, his appeal. Winding this up, tying together the the loose threads, he says that in your unity, recognize divinely supplied diversity. You understand the analogy he's saying. Let's tie it up now. Verse 27, what are we saying? Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You are the body of Christ. The Corinthian believers are the body of Christ, not a part, and I quote here from Carson, not a part of the body, but the outcropping of the church or the exemplar of the church in that particular place. They aren't the church only, and they're not simply a part of it, but they are an outcropping or an exemplar of all that the church is in that particular place. So consider also the terminology of that we are members. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Consider that this is where we get the term church membership. We don't get the term church member from the health club world or some buying club. That's not where we get the terminology. When we speak of church membership, we speak of ourselves as members of Christ's body, as body parts. When we speak of membership, we could speak of body parts, but that just doesn't sound so good. (laughs) So we'll go with member. That sounds a lot better. This is where we get it. And somebody might say, well, you make so much out of membership. And Paul's just, isn't he just talking to this one church that's having a problem? He's just using a figure of speech here. I think I'd answer back and say, not really. I'll just read it. Romans 12, 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Same point to the Romans. Same point to the Ephesians, chapter 3 and verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Later in the book of Ephesians, he says, Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. Here's the phrase again. Because we are members of his body. This is not a simple analogy in one place but really a pervasive sense of how the apostle writes about the local church. We are the body of Christ. We are individual members of it. We are body parts in that body. Verse 28, And God has then appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? And the obvious answer to what is what? No, of course not. Does the nose hear? Does the tongue see? It's his point. No, not everyone is all of these things. Just as God gave some the gift of working miracles or healing the sick, He also gave the gift of apostles to the church. Just as the Corinthians knew beyond any doubt that not any one of them was an apostle, 
they had to know that not all the members then worked miracles or spoke in tongues. A diversity of gifts were distributed by the Spirit to a diversity of members. One commentator puts this well. He says, there are no one-member churches. Some people need to recognize that. (laughs) But there are no one-member churches. And there are no every-member gifts. They are distributed individually with diversity. So no one-member churches and no every-member gifts. Verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Paul is not saying, of course, contextually, that some gifts are unimportant. He is provoking his readers to ask, Paul, what do you mean? Seek the higher gifts. We assume that from what you've written, that the spiritual gifts are of equal importance. Isn't that kind of what you've been saying? Paul, I think, is piquing their interest, setting the Corinthians up for his argument that gifts are equally important manifestations of the Spirit in the church. However, some gifts build up the church more than others, and these then accord more directly with the principle of love without, which outshines all. Chapter 13. I will show you then a still more excellent way. You want to build up the church of Jesus Christ, let me show you love. That's superior to all the use of gifts in the assembly. More on that, Lord willing, later. But the point we clearly take from this passage is that unity without diversity is impossible, and diversity without unity is destructive. So we must learn to value and encourage different manifestations of the Spirit as we minister to one another. While miraculous gifts were uniquely tied to an era of new revelation, as as they always were, while gifts of the Spirit may look differently today than they did in the Corinthian church, in any event, we must not look down on any gift or member who is contributing to the health of the church and the advance of the gospel because that member is not ministering my way doing it like I'd like to see it done, or in my way, so I can't do this. None of that. On the other hand, we must not insist on expressing our gifts or ministering in the church in a way that does not contribute to the church's unity and growth. The way of love that he'll describe in chapter 13 trumps all of that. So unity, because of diversity, is not uniformity. But it certainly is not untethered into that individuality either. I'm my own franchisee. I do things my way. There is no such spirit here at all. The church does not exist as a platform of our self-chosen preferences or our self-promoting agendas. There are doctrines and there are practices that we hold dear and so we unite around them as an assembly, perhaps uniquely in our day and setting compared to theirs. But this is not a place for self-chosen preference and self-promoting agendas. The local church exists to display the reality that the risen Christ is actively saving a people for his own possession, setting them apart to live holy lives by the transforming power of the Spirit in submission to the authoritative word. 
That's our agenda. That's our purpose. That's why he's given us life. And it is our high calling then to pour out our service to that end in collaborative, edifying labor for Christ. So brothers and sisters, do not buy the lie that the church does not need you and do not buy the lie that you don't need the church. Such thinking is wholly out of step with what the Holy Spirit designs and what He desires for His people. Rather, I encourage you, labor to use your Holy Spirit-empowered capacities to minister for the growth and for the prosperity of the local church where God has sovereignly placed you at this time. Find your joy in this. Keep growing in your capacities to lift kingdom weight and to encourage and build up the assembly Jesus died to save. And if you're not a member of the body of Christ, you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, do not buy the lie that you don't need Him. You do. And when you stand before Him in eternity, you'll know it. So know it now. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Jesus does not need you, but you need him desperately. Ask him to show you this reality, and know that nothing more important could ever happen to you in this world than to have your sins washed clean and to take up the place God has reserved for you in the body of Christ. It is that very rescue that we now celebrate around this table. Father, guide us to it as we commune with Christ and as we commune with one another. Help us to look around. Help us to see the diversity that by your grace you have supplied to this assembly. Help us to see the oneness at this table. Christ above all. Christ at the center of all that we are and do and believe. Lord, may we gather here stating that you are Lord. May we gather here thanking you that we have a part in the body of Christ. Deepen us in our faith, our walk with you, as we gather at this table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.